invite you this morning to turn to Matthew chapter 15 if you would. We've been reading through Matthew for a little while. Go ahead and stand with me if you would. We're going to jump right into the text. Sometimes we begin with some opening remarks, but for this morning's purposes, we're going to go straight in. We're in verse 21, and so if you're scrolling there on your phone or maybe in paper copy in front of you, you're welcome to do that. Remember, there are Bibles in front of you in the pews or in the chairs in front of you. I'd take this moment to advertise as well. Um, we are a church who has an unlimited uh, budget when it comes to buying Bibles, okay? If you you don't own a Bible and you sit in here on a Sunday morning and you think like, I, man, I, I need to buy one. I don't know which one to buy. I'm not sure which Bible to do. Let me just go ahead and tell you, the Bibles that are in underneath these chairs, there's a little rack there and in each row there's at least one or two or three of them. You are more than welcome, encouraged. Matter of fact, I'm even begging you this morning. If you don't own a Bible, grab one out of there and take it home with you. It is now yours. All right? I uh, would love to extend that. We have boxes of Bibles we can replace them with, so it's never a problem. We'd love to make sure that you have one. Matthew chapter Chapter 15, beginning in verse 21, says that leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter's demon possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Y'all, we come before you this morning reading what is likely one of the least characteristic, normally characteristic stories of, of Jesus. This morning, God, maybe we read it with a raised eyebrow or a bit of curiosity or maybe even bold enough to ask the question, what in the world is going on with Jesus in this, in this story? Yet, God, this morning it is our heart's desire that you would speak to us through the stories that you've made available. And we know that falling within this, however odd it may seem at first, still falling within, God, that is a blessing that we're able to read it. And so speak to us this morning. Help us to know you better. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to tell you this morning, put this story in a bit of context, all right? Like every, every Sunday or the vast majority of Sundays when we spend time together, you'll hear me say this. And if you have before, then here's your intro. If you have before, then just bear with me for a moment. Read the Bible in greater context than just a few verses. I don't have any problem with uh, devotional books that have a, you know, a couple of short verses and then they, they write about them. I don't necessarily mind sermons that have a, a verse or two and then they spend a lot of time with an expository work letting that... that, that that maybe short passage speak. But one of the things that I feel like we need to do and, and do diligently is make sure that we look at our stories and like, where does this fall? Because more times than not, when you see the way that these stories are unfolding and the kind of the story and the greater story of Jesus, they mean even more to us. And so this morning, I think, is a way for us to begin. Like, let's talk for just a second about where in the world is this place? Now, I've provided a map here for those who are in the sanctuary. Uh, if you're online this morning listening on the radio, just bear with me. I'll do well, uh, my best to try and describe what, I, what we are looking at so that you have a, a decent picture. So the map that we're looking at now has Jerusalem down toward the bottom, Bethlehem down toward the bottom of the map. And if you look at the top of the map, uh, you'll see there's the Mediterranean Sea is over on the left side. Uh, as you go to the top, you'll see an area listed as Phoenicia. And I know some of your eyes, you're picking this up immediately. Some of you are squinting with all you have. Just trust me. All right. If you're squinting with all you got, just trust me. All right. If you're super interested in this specific map, be sure and send it to me. It's free material and I'm happy to email it to you. Um, but there's a, uh, there's a picture 
Scripture here and just kind of give a bit of perspective. I'm even going to come out here on the uh, floor and point out a couple of things. So at the very bottom down here, Bethlehem and Jerusalem. We'll move forward so our speakers don't give us much trouble. Sorry about that. Uh, at the very top is Tyre, okay? When you read about Tyre and Sidon, Sidon's actually a little bit off the map, a little bit further up. But when you get a picture of what this looks like, this distance, sometimes we have in our minds the area that Jesus would have walked around in. And you need to know that like this is kind of the outer boundaries, not completely, but some of the outer boundaries that you read about, okay? So uh, in total, you also have Samaria. If you remember some of the stories of Samaria, you've got Judea down here in the south. And um, then you're talking about Galilee up here in the north around the Sea of Galilee, right? Well, from Tyre all the way down to Jerusalem is about 105 miles as the way they say. In the south, we have a phrase anyway. I don't know if this, if this transfers all over. We say the word the, as the way a crow flies. Does that make sense? So like in a straight line, if you were just to take off, it's about 105 miles from top to bottom. Now, imagine all of this and the vast majority, if not every bit of it, is accomplished on foot. Okay, so like that's the kind of travel that Jesus is doing over the three and a half years that we read or three years we read about Jesus. About 105 miles north and south. Now, something that's interesting to me is if you were to take your phone right now and go to maybe your Google map or whatever, you know, I assume Waze would do this as well, whatever map you use. If you were to put this in, oftentimes it's going to send you on a journey that's closer to 250 miles because there's no really good way to get there unless you're going to travel what I believe is the M5 is what they call it. And so if you were going to travel today, you would take some version that came way over here, go all the way up, up to Damascus, and then you would, uh, Damascus is more like up in here if I'm not mistaken, and you come right back down on the map back down the tire. So there's not a really, really good way of getting there, at least as, uh, as Google would tell you today, right? But when you look at this, this is a pretty big chunk of land. As a matter of fact, some of the stories that we've just been reading, let's picture here recently where Jesus has been, here around the sea. You remember some of the things that we've talked about here recently? We talked about Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is the location of that, all right? When Jesus feeds the 5,000, then we read that he was traveling across to somewhere near Capernaum. That's all on the north side up there, somewhere in this general area, okay? When Jesus traveled across and he gets to Capernaum, uh, actually there's a uh, story there when he travels across that people are finding him and they're beginning to ask him questions. They're beginning to, to pester him even more. The feeding of the 5,000, as a matter of fact, he first leaves because he hears about John the Baptist. Y'all remember this? And then he travels and when he gets over to where he travels to, then he hears, of, then the people show up, then he feeds the 5,000 and he travels back out to sea again. As a matter of fact, this part of the story, when he comes across somewhere in here, all right, some people say from this direction, some are here a little bit closer, but regardless, that town right here, Gennesaret, all right, this is the town that you read about when Jesus tries to get away. This is what immediately precedes what we're reading this morning. He has taken some time away, then he leaves. You remember part of these stories as well, that part of the of the water is also when he appears to the disciples walking on the water. Remember that story? Still in the same general area, right? So now he's arriving over on this other, and the, and the Pharisees start showing up, and they're asking him questions about, uh, is it right to eat without washing your hands? We, we may explore that a little bit more. But it's like Jesus just can't get away from not just people wanting him, and, and beautifully Jesus has compassion on, him, on them every time, but they, they're also asking questions, especially from the Pharisees, trying to trip him up. They're trying to, to trick him in his words and trying to get him kind of caught up. And so when you read this, this is what is a real oddity about the story and the reason I bring it up. When he travels this 25 to 30 miles-ish distance, depending on his direct route, and he gets up to the area, area of Tyre and Sidon, this is the one time that we read about Jesus leaving what we would consider homeland. Like this is the time when he leaves. When we talk about homeland, we talk about the, the, the Galilee, Judea, Samaria, like the, the, the places of traditionally his people 
And now he's traveling up into where the Phoenicians live. You get a picture of Jesus going up here, and it's almost as if you read that for a while he's been trying to find some time to himself, some time to be able to get away. He's still continuing to do that. And so finally, like you read, like Jesus is heading to Tyre and Sidon because he's going to get to somewhere where people won't maybe not even recognize him. Like this is what it looks like Jesus has been doing for a while. He's been trying to retire, trying to get into other places. And so he goes to this place called near Tyre and Sidon, right? Now, one of the things about this I think is interesting. When Jesus goes there, he's not expecting people, not in a very real way to recognize him. This past week, my wife and I had the chance, uh, we were given a couple of tickets to go to the PBR event, the Professional Bull Riders event. Matter of fact, there are folks who are attending here this morning who are coming to church at nine o'clock and I believe loading up and heading to Nashville to go watch not, uh, night number three, the third installment. So I hope y'all have a blast. It's going to be a great time. Uh, that event has been one that is, has grown over the years and has changed a bit. Used to bull riding was something that was done as an individual individual sport. Uh, the specific series that I was watching on Friday night is a team sport. So you have people representing Tennessee or the Carolinas or Arizona all over the place. And it made for a, a very, very fun event. Well, the thing that I like to do at those events, we got there very early. And, uh, and so we were kind of sitting in the stands and talking and hanging out with some friends. And, and as we're sitting there hanging out, you know, you start seeing people arrive and you start seeing people that are from very different kind of uh, looks and objectives for being there. There are those who show up and you can tell that they have driven somewhere in Nashville to buy themselves a set of cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. Uh, one of the jokes around Nashville, Tennessee is the people not from here wear cowboy hats. You know what I mean, that's kind of a joke. You know, it's like you can tell the, the tourists because they're the ones wearing the cowboy hats and the boots more times than not. And, and if you saw a post that I made, yes, uh, full, full disclosure, absolutely I was wearing a cowboy hat. But let me tell you, I think I've earned it. I've got a little bit of a stigma against cowboy hats, by the way. Uh, I think if you're going to be something, be something, don't play the role. So Stephanie will vouch for me. We bought mules years ago. We've been into that world for two and a half years. And I figured I've owned mules for two and a half years, doggone it. Now I've earned the right for a cowboy hat, right? All right, so I wear my cowboy hat, okay? So I'm going on to the, uh, to the event. I'm looking around. You've got the folks you can tell, like, they're, they're very much dressed the part of cowboyish. And then you've got the other ones that show up that you can tell these folks are like legit cowboys, all right? The legit cowboys show up, and in my opinion, they're the ones whose boots don't look like they're ready to go to church on Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, they're probably at the front door of the Bridgestone doing something like this, kicking the mess off and then walking on in. Their hats are stained with different types of tans and yellows from the amount of times that they've been sweaty in those hats, that they've been thrown off into the dirt. These are the legit folks. And then you've got some other folks that are just there, really doesn't have anything to do with the rodeo. They just seem to be enjoying their time. They're just looking for a good night to do something outside the box. And I mean, who doesn't like the excitement of guys trying to stay on the back of a bull jumping all over the place? It's just, a, it's, a, it's a ton of thing, to, uh, fun to watch. Well, while we're sitting there, I'd gone to get something to drink for uh, Stephanie and myself. And when I came back, there was a young lady sitting in front of Stephanie. And uh, I mean, just like immediately in front of us. And it caught me a little bit odd uh, because most people came with other individuals. And so when I first sat down, I thought, oh, I'm sure her husband or boyfriend or whomever has gone off to get drinks like I did for Stephanie. And, and, uh, and he'll be back in a moment. And then the event kicks off and nobody shows up. And then I start being a little bit more curious and I'm looking over and I'm like, I don't, I don't know how to say this. I'm going to try to say this as politically as correct as possible. But we're talking about a young lady who is, she's very attractive in nature. You know what I mean? Like very attractive person. No, she's no Stephanie Metters, but she's attractive. Okay. 
And so like I remember seeing like it's odd to me that a woman who is as dressed up, dolled up, and then I start like a little bit more kind of noticing here. There's a couple of rings on her fingers. Folks, I don't think you measured one of those diamonds in carrots. I think you measured it in inches. It was wild. You know what I mean? Like and legit, you know, and then I look over and they're like, oh, this girl's also like, she's got a Chanel purse. Like I'm, I'm like, this is interesting to me that this person is by herself. And I mean like she's sitting in the middle and it's like six seats each direction. You know what I mean? She's also keeping to herself and she's watching, you know, doing things on her phone or whatever. Every time I look down, she's sending messages or something, you know? So there's a bit of intrigue growing here. Like how does this, this doesn't fit the mold. Like she has to know somebody here. About halfway through the event, I see her all of a sudden get very interested in what's going on in the rodeo. And then she hears a name that's coming out. And I'm telling you, turned into another person. She's jumping up with her phone. She's trying to record. She's picking her phone up. And while she's recording, people are, it's perfect timing. People are right in front of her walking to their seats with popcorn and blocking her. And she's doing this kind of stuff. Now she's crawling over the seat to get past me. Then she's going up above us trying to get somewhere where she can record. She comes back down. And then, you know, very, very interesting. I'm like, she must be interested in this Cooper Davis dude. You know what I mean? Like, he He's a, he's a bull rider, must be interested. So she sits back down, and after she's been there for a few minutes, I'm sitting there kind of like finding a bit of humor in this because, the, I mean, she's in tall cowboy boot high heels. I didn't know what that was. That looks like an ankle breaker and a half to me, but she's crawling over seats in these things. Up she goes, back she comes back down, then she settles back down. And then a few minutes later, another blonde-headed girl comes walking down my aisle, and I see her out of my peripheral, and I'm like, you know, this is odd because nobody's sitting on our row. And as soon as she gets to my side, she hollers over, she goes, are you Caitlin? And Caitlin turns up and looks like that. She goes, yes. And she goes, I'm such a fan of yours. Can I get a picture? I'm like, what in the world's going on? So this girl's name's Caitlin Davis, apparently. Like they start talking for a moment and the girl's like, I'm shivering. I'm shivering. I just, oh, thank you so much. And I'm like, oh my God, apparently I was sitting beside somebody important. You know, I start looking on like, where is she in socials? And I, I do Instagram. I don't do TikTok because I'm not a teenage girl. So... <laughs> So I look at Instagram, and then I find the Instagram post and everything, and I'm like, aha, so this, this girl's got several hundred thousand followers. You know what I mean? Like, and what's wild to me is she's sitting out here by herself. She's there, by the way, she's married to Cooper Davis. That's her husband, okay? You're watching this. All, and so like, I realize we live in a very, very different world. If you're a person who is known, who is recognized, there is no getting away today. You know what I mean? Like, there's no, there's no escape. I can't imagine. I've, I've been... I've had some twists in my life where I've sat beside taking people fishing. I've hosted folks on, I've hosted folks that broke Garth Brooks and Alan Jackson's records. And when you host people who are that level of, of, of popular and famous, there's a level of their existence that's almost, it's very taxing because they just can't get away. There is no going to the grocery store anymore. There is no going, don't get me wrong. It comes with all sorts of great benefits and all those sorts of great things, I don't doubt, you know, but there's a level of this that you just can't get away. And, and as I read about Jesus, going to this area, you need to picture a Jesus who is ultimately leaving the country, so to speak. He's leaving major boundaries to go up into Tyre and Sidon. He's with the Phoenicians, folks, and when it comes to the relationship between the Jews and the Phoenicians, they have known to hate each other for a long time. As a matter of fact, Josephus writes about their relationship that they would refer to each other in certain ways, and as you've read this story, guess what name they would call each other? Give you a hint, it starts with a D and ends with Augs. Some of you have no point of reference of, of what that means, folks. When, when these people have a relationship that they call each other by those sorts of names, a dog was not what you have today, which is some lovable character more than likely in your home. This was something that was used as a way to, to very intensely insult someone else, all right? So when you think about their relationship, you need to know that Jesus has gone into an area that they don't associate with, and it's almost this picture of him going there in a way to be able to disappear, to have some time. And as you read the story of Jesus, 
his intensity levels are beginning to pick up. John the Baptist has been killed and now he's trying to get away with his disciples to be able to speak with them more earnestly, to spend more time retired and talking to, his, to the Heavenly Father. Those, that's, the, that's the feeling that you're getting from what he's doing. And yet within this story is one of the most odd and the most confusing moments. Can you imagine with me for just a moment? I'm not going to go back and read the story again, but you, you heard it a second ago. Jesus and his disciples are here in this Canaanite woman as she is described begins to, to walk up, begins to, to call out to them. And she's saying things. She begins with, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is in great need and she is suffering terribly. You notice how Jesus responds to her at first? I know this seems to be a bit of a weird description. It's not very Christ-like. Matter of fact, what is his first response to her? Good answer. He ignores her. Absolutely ignores her. And for a brief moment, you start getting the picture like, is Jesus near that point if he just can't and doesn't want to deal with people anymore? It's what it feels like when you first read this. It's what it feels like. The disciples, by the way, can you imagine being here as one of the disciples when this woman is close enough to hear their conversation and converse back and forth? I can't tell you if she's this close or that close, but she's somewhere close enough to be able to call back and forth and speak back and forth. And when she says, have mercy on me, the same Jesus who has had compassion on thousands of people who have intruded on him trying to find time to be with the Heavenly Father to mourn the loss of John the Baptist, that same Jesus does not recognize nor even uh, uh, identify or, or, or even look at. He just continues to move. Can you imagine the awkwardness for the disciples? Now they're also a little bit subject to their master and so they don't want to do something. They've, uh, by the way, in their stories, they get in trouble for sending people away. So now they're trying to ask Jesus, hey, do you want us to just dismiss her and tell her to go away? I mean, it's got to be an incredibly awkward moment in that back and forth. And then Jesus responds, as the disciples say, she keeps crying out after us. Do you want us to send her away? Jesus responds in such a way that it's like he's responding to what the disciples say, but he's doing so so that she will hear. And he says this, I was sent only to the lost souls of Israel, or better yet, the lost sheep of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Yes, no answer. Does that sound Christ-like to you? If you read this story somewhere else, you'd probably throw it out as not even being Jesus. Like folks, this is anti the Jesus we know. I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel seems to be against everything that Jesus says and absolutely everything that Paul says about the nature of who Jesus was and what he came to accomplish. It just doesn't make sense. After ignoring her, after responding about only being here for the lost sheep of Israel, the thing that, that amazes me the most is that Jesus says back to her, she cries out again and, you know, have mercy on me, you know, and, 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 the, and his final response to her at this point of the story is, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. This is almost as if, because of the way other races and ethnicities are being talked about, this is almost racial slur, okay? Jesus is using words here that seem so not Christ-like. It's frustrating to, to hear them because it just doesn't line up with what we know about Jesus, and yet there's, there's no way to talk your way out of this. Like, this is the Word of God. It's what God's provided, and, and, and Jesus is speaking in this way. So maybe for just a moment, can we focus for just a second maybe on the Canaanite woman herself. And then maybe through doing that, we come back and, and revisit this. Because I believe this, this frustrating part of Jesus needs to be simmered for a minute. It, it needs to, to spend some time steeping. So the Canaanite woman, let's just spend some time with her for a moment. More importantly, as we've talked about her and more specifically, likely a Phoenician woman being between Tyre and Sidon. I told you earlier about Josephus. One of the quotes of his is that, that, that they had the most ill intent feeling toward the Jews and that that was reciprocal, that their relationship was not good. And yet when she is there, when she recognizes for some way, recognizing somehow who Jesus is, she's persistent in crying out to her. I mean, one of the things about this that would be very frustrating, can you imagine for a 
moment crying out to Jesus and He doesn't even acknowledge you? Lord, have mercy on me, Son of David. Can you imagine seeing Jesus in everything that you know, that you've heard, that you've read about Jesus, and when you cry out to Him, He doesn't even make eye contact. He doesn't acknowledge your presence. He just continues to move on like, like nothing's taken, play, taken place. And yet one of the things about her is she continues to be persistent. Not only does she hear what Jesus, or see how Jesus doesn't respond, then she hears the disciples talking about dismissing her. She doesn't, she doesn't seem to be phased. She doesn't seem to be, seem not, not to even be daunted by this opposition that she's feeling from the followers of Jesus. Folks, it gets worse. We talked about this from the disciples' position for a moment. Think about this from this young lady's position, right? She hears Jesus say something like, I only came to help the lost sheep of Israel. Folks, it's also the reference to the children. I came only for that, which means you are on the outside. I did not come for you. All the, however you found me, however you, you hurt, I didn't come for you. That's what that statement says. And yet what does she continue to do? Even though God is not answering her prayer or even, it, even acknowledging her in this, even though Jesus is not acknowledging her in this, what does she do? She calls out to him again and says, Lord, capital L. Okay, folks, not lowercase as in ruler of this earth, capital L as we translate it, Lord. She cries out to him again, acknowledging who he is, even though so far she's not received nearly the response that she was hoping to receive. And then the final blow, Jesus responds by asking her the question, how do you get even the breadcrumbs from the table? How, how do you deserve to eat here? This woman, I, I place myself in her shoes and I wonder sometimes when would I have given up in this? When I feel like Jesus ignores me? When the followers of Jesus are speaking ill and trying to dismiss me? Do I, do I give up on this whole trusting Jesus to meet my needs even after he says that I'm not even one of the ones that he came to save? Folks, if there's something about this story that speaks volumes to us, it is in this woman's persistence. And as a matter of fact, not just her persistence. Folks, what is it that it says is, is the reason for her daughter being healed? What is it that Jesus is impressed with her about? What, what, what dynamic of her is it? And it is what? It is her faith. You are a woman of great faith. One of the parts of the story that jumps out at us we have to recognize in the life that we're living right now, we're in such a quick response mode that we give up very, very easily. Uh, when we, we need to find something quickly, and if we don't find it quickly, it just means it's not meant to be. And this, this story that we're reading about right here is a woman of, of absolute persistence, even though, and folks, there's a difference between persistence and pestering, right? There's a difference between persistence and whining. This is not, this is not what we, this is her persisting to say, you are Lord and I know you can fix this problem and I'm going to have faith in you even if so far you have not said anything or done anything that makes me think you're going to. I've not seen any action, she's not seen any movement and yet she continues to. Folks, this story is one, man, what a, what a woman, amen? What a woman. I don't guess we can leave here this morning without dealing with Jesus' words. Folks, when Jesus, when we read these words, there's one thing about this story that makes it a bit difficult for us to process. It's one of the reasons why the, the world that we're living in today is suffering in interpersonal communication. Uh, we don't know how to communicate well. It's why uh, typically, if there's something that I would encourage, especially uh, younger individuals, if you're in this room and you are 30 or less, all right, especially if you are 20 or less, if you are in your teenage years, especially, folks, if you have, if, if you say your, your, um, your age and it ends in teen, I need you to hear me for the next few moments. Every generation has the things that they struggle with they have to work through, okay? Uh, 
generations before you were getting ready to graduate high school thinking that they were going to be drafted to Vietnam or world wars. Okay, like every generation has the things that they face uh, and that the, the things will be difficult for them. At my age, I'm 42 years old, I'm the last kind of generation of people to graduate without the cell phone world. Okay, I remember what it was like to leave my house and my parents having no idea where I was going other than I told them I was going to so-and-so's house. They did not have trackers on my phone, they did not have a way to tell where I was, all those sorts of, like a very, very different way of living. There's goods and bads to everything. The, the great thing that you have at your disposal today is information at an unprecedented amount. You can get answers to anything in your world, and that's an incredibly great benefit. Here's the not great benefit. You lose the ability to communicate one-to-one, eye-to-eye. You know what I mean? Like, and you have to work for this, okay? Young people, listen to me. Put yourself in situations where you have to look each, other's in the eye, each other in the eyes and have conversations, because eventually you're going to go to a job interview, and yes, that may happen over Zoom, but you're still going to have to be able to communicate with each other eye to eye at some level. It's still the nature of who we are. There is that that needs to take place. And so work at that because what's the problem that we're dealing with right now is we have people who operate, the old word was keyboard warriors. People can say all sorts of things behind a keyboard, right? It's different when you have to look each other in the eyes. And when you read this story this morning, we're suffering from this story from a very 2023 problem. You understand? We're reading black and white. Absolutely reading black and white. Can I pitch to you this morning a different conversation taking place between Jesus and this woman? Not where Jesus is calling her a dog. Not where Jesus is saying something derogatory, demeaning, and demoralizing for a woman who is begging to have her daughter's life saved. Her daughter's life healed is probably the best way to say that. What happens if Jesus recognizes within her before their conversation even, if, if in the divinity of who Jesus is, he recognizes who she is, and he has this entire conversation with her with a smile of sincere, of a genuine smile, not a smirk. You know the difference? You ever had somebody give you an answer and they're smirking at you? How's that make you feel? Oh, not good. We're going to be laying hands. You know what I mean? I don't mean to pray. I know what you feel like, all right? No, this is one of those where when you feel someone smirking at you, it's different. But when they say something to you that they know you know better than, they see within you intelligence and depth of understanding that you know better than, does it change the story if Jesus looks at her with a calm demeanor and a smile on his face and he says these words to her again? You know I was only sent for the lost sheep of Israel. She knows better. When she knows better, she cries out to him again and says, Lord, no, I know better. And then he goes a little bit further with her in this conversation and says, how do the dogs deserve to eat at this table? You know, how does that, how, how do the dogs, your people, how do you deserve to eat at this table? And undaunted and knowing, knowing what he's talking about and maybe in her depth of understanding of who, her depth of understanding of who he is, she responds by, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. We may suffer in our identity as seeing ourselves as worthy of sitting at the table with Jesus eating the same, where the humility of this woman shows up and says, anything that falls from your table is nothing but blessing for me. Even the littlest thing to fall from your table is blessing on my life. And, and so maybe in this story, is a much greater statement of her faith and her understanding of her relationship to God that Jesus doesn't necessarily need her in order for her, his life. But she recognizes that as, as representation of the Heavenly Father, any small thing that he would drop in her, in her direction is something that she doesn't necessarily deserve, it is a, but it is absolutely a blessing for her. Absolutely something that is above and beyond. I, I read last week or talked last week about everything that falls in this context, everything that falls from the Father's table would either be icing or gravy. Remember that? 
Some of you are cupcake people and you like the thought of like icing on top and thick icing means good. Some of you are gravy and biscuit people. You just like gravy. I hear you. So whichever one you want to use, it applies, okay? Whatever God would do to make her life better, whatever God would drop from the, from the proverbial table because she sees herself in such a place of humility. And Jesus recognizing her faith smiles at her and says, it is your faith that is impressive. It is that, yeah. And then we read that this woman's daughter is healed because of her humility, her persistence, and her faith. I don't read this story anymore from a perspective where I look at Jesus and want to ask the question, what are you doing? I read it from a place that I really wish I was sitting there watching this all go down. I wish I could replay it and see it. But the more I know about Jesus and the more I read this story, the more I see a Jesus who understands her at a much deeper level than just some woman who walked up. And he understands and he sees what's with inside her. And he has this conversation, not in a demoralizing or derogatory way, but with a smile on his face and a place of gentleness and a place of understanding of who she is. And maybe that this morning lines up perfectly with the Jesus we know. God, we come before you this morning, not shying away from some of the texts that at face value may seem a bit difficult for us in the nature of who Jesus is. And with the desire this morning that God, even in some of the difficult texts that we read, that you would shed light on who you are, on who Jesus Christ is here on this earth. And maybe this morning, God, to be inspired by a Canaanite woman, by being, by being directed by the Holy Spirit, she continues in her persistence and her faithfulness to trust Jesus to be the one who can provide and who can answer her prayer, even though it doesn't happen immediately, even though there's opposition in the midst of it, even though there is difficulty in the midst of it. God, she continues to persist in her faithfulness. And for that, God, we are grateful to be able to read her story. Would you grow within us that same determined, persistent nature in our faithfulness toward you. We love you this morning. We thank you for who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed.